Hunting boots are a critical component of any successful hunt. Whether walking a short distance to your blind or trudging miles through rugged terrain, your feet are carrying the load. Without the right boots, you could give up early and lose out on that trophy just over the ridge. At Midway USA, we make selecting boots for your next hunt easier. With just a few clicks of a mouse, you can decide on what's important, like waterproofing, insulation, size, width, and savings. For just about everything for shooting, hunting, and the outdoors, check out MidwayUSA.com. Knives, machetes, saws, and shears, multi-tools, shovels, swords, axes, spears, hatchets, and tomahawks. If it cuts, snips, slices, or chops, Midway USA has it. Find great gift ideas in our huge selection of pocket knives and other everyday carry folding knives. Make a statement or create a family legacy with one of our top-of-the-line hunting knives. We've got a great selection of manual and electric sharpeners, too. For just about everything for the outdoors, check out MidwayUSA.com. Hi everybody, it's Doc from the John Freakin' Mirpod, and I want to let you know about our new website on WordPress. Take a few minutes and check it out. You'll be able to find pictures of the pod's guests, links to the podcast and social media accounts, ways to support the pod, how to get in touch, and our entire back catalog is there, including episode summaries. Miss these sections of the JMT episodes? You can find them there. Missed a Triple Crowner episode? Yep, that's there too. World travelers, adventure athletes, polar explorers, Barkley Marathon competitors, authors, filmmakers, documentarians, and more are waiting for you. Take a look at the new website, and just a reminder, adventure lives here. Mountains are like the great equalizer. It doesn't matter who anyone is or what they do. Jimmy Chen. So uh, I was heading back into the Ionian Basin, uh, kind of a stranger way than most people go. Um, I headed straight out from Lake Sabrina to uh, what's called the, the Haeckel Wallace Coal, uh, just a big steep coal between Mount Haeckel and Mount Wallace, and planned to do Mount Wallace and then hike down the other side into the Evolution Basin and get ready for Goddard the next day. Um, but on my way out, uh, clouds started coming in, started getting dark, and the two previous days, they had gotten dark, but rain never never came. So I didn't think too much of it. Got to uh, got to my coal and was like, okay, I'll push, I'll, I'll just go up it. I think the weather will hold. And I got about 500 feet from the summit of the peak, actually. I was at, I think about 12 or 13,000 feet and it started raining on me. And I got a little bit worried, but was like, okay, I'll just hunker down under this boulder and wait it out. And as I started waiting it out, then it starts to hail. And I'm like, crap, I'm like maybe I should just push up and go over this thing. I only have 500 more feet. Just go over and get down and get to safety. So I get out from under this rock, start climbing straight up, very steep sand in, and uh, granite that's wet now, inhale, 
I'm pushing up that already dangerous. And then I just hear it, the loudest explosion I've ever heard at the same time as I see this huge flash right next to me, like probably a mile away at Clyde Spire, hit the ridge line. And I just turned around and beelined straight down the mountain. It just like, my heart just stopped. It was like, oh my God, I'm gonna die out there. So it just went straight down, steep, wet granite and sand, just flying down this mountain with rocks falling everywhere. Get down to the bottom and set up my camp, my tent as fast as I can as there's rock fall coming down now. From both sides of this hole, there's, I just hear constantly rock fall, rock fall, rock fall. And get my tent set up, get in there, and then the entire night just had to sit through hearing rock fall, hearing lightning, hoping I'm not gonna get struck. And I'm completely exposed up there, just out at a tarn below the peak. So that was, it was intense, it was, it was terrifying, and it really shook me. I was feeling invincible leading up to that. Just nothing really bad had happened. I'd done all these peaks, I'd come so many miles, and all of a sudden it was just so humbling, like, holy crap, like, I could have just died up there. That was crazy. I'm Doc, and this is the John Freaking Mirpod. Welcome to the John Freakin' Muir Pod. Lace up those boots and sling on the pack for a romp through trails, short and long. With your host and renaissance man, Doc, it's time to embrace the suck. Welcome back to another trip down the trail this week, and we are going to be taking a fun side trip to explore some trail-adjacent adventures you may not have even known were so close. Usually, as we walk down our tried and true trails in the Sierras, we are surrounded by so many majestic towering peaks and we just soak up the sights and enjoy the hike. But there are other adventurers out there who step off the main trail and scramble up to the tops of those peaks and take in incredible perspectives that the rest of us never get to see. Yes, this week we're going to be talking about peak bagging and helping us out with this is Mike Toffee. Welcome to the pod, Mike. Hey, how's it going? Great, great. How are you doing? Pretty good. <laughs> so have you been on any podcasts before? I have not. This is my first time. Okay, very good. Well, hey, it's just you and me talking. We're going to have a good time tonight. All right. All right. So have you listened to the pod before, Mike? I have, yes. Okay, so you're familiar then. We've got a, a regular segment called the Pro Tip Insight of the Week. And that is uh, where I'm going to turn to you at the end of the episode and say, all right, Mike, what's your pro tip? What can you share with our listeners that can make their next adventure that much better? All right. Okay. So don't be surprised by that. And just kind of uh, the tips should kind of arise from our natural conversation during the, during the episode. All right. Right on. Okay. So Mike, tell us a little bit about, tell us a little bit about yourself. Uh, first, do you have a trail name? I do not. No trail name. Okay. No. All right. I think my, my last names are unique enough. That's what most people call me. Toffee. Yeah. <laughs> Very good. All right. So, hey, where did you, uh, where'd you grow up? Uh, what, uh, what kind of family did you have growing up? Uh, what are you doing for a career? All that, all that kind of good stuff. Um, so I grew up in San Jose, California, in a town called Amandem Valley, up against the Santa Cruz Mountains. Um, Grew up with both my parents, and they actually got me outdoors early as a kid out uh, hiking, catching lizards, and fishing, stuff like that. So they're the first people that introduced me to the outdoors. And uh, currently, I'm living in San Jose. I'm out of work right now, but 
usually do warehouse work, shipping, receiving, forklift operator. Um, so currently in San Jose and yeah, just doing my thing out here. Single, no kids. So. Okay, you got time on your hands to get, get some adventures in. Oh yeah, had a lot this year. <laughs> nice. And you say catching lizards. What is the tried and true lizard catching technique? I don't know, sticking your hands in rocks, in between rocks. <laughs> you know, one of the things I discovered when I was hiking with a buddy in uh, Big Sur is that if you take some of those long, um, you know, those, those kind of dried out dead bushes that have like the foxtails on them? Oh, yeah. You know what I'm talking about? So if you, oh, yeah. if you take one of those off, take one of those long, thin strands off and you fashion a, a little loop at the end of it, lizards' brains are not trained to recognize the little movements, just the big movements of like birds and other predators kind of swooping in. So you can uh -huh. actually sneak up on a lizard and slip that, that uh, loop around their neck and catch them without them even moving. That's great. You have to That's give right. that a shot next time. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So when did you uh, get into hiking and backpacking? Have you done a lot of hiking and backpacking? So um, growing up, I did a lot of hiking just in the mountains around our town and to waterfalls, but no, no backpacking really until the last like two years is when I really got into backpacking and uh, peak bagging, same thing. I'd done peaks in the past, but didn't really get heavy into it until the past year and a half. Okay. And you had quite the, quite the, the past year in terms of peak bagging. I mean, how many... Oh, yeah. I was pretty impressed by the numbers you shared in our, in our messages to each other. How many peaks have you been atop of this year? Um, I summited 140 peaks in the Sierra and 240 peaks total between the Sierra, California coastal peaks, and then two mountain ranges in Nevada and one in Utah. Uh, and are those typically just uh, day trips or are those multi-day trips? A lot of multi-day trips and some day trips, but a lot more multi-day trips. I have a little different style than some people. <laughs> okay. Yeah. I'm interested to hear about that style a little bit later. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah. So that's my, those are my numbers for my peaks. And then hiked about 2000 miles in the past year with wow. about 550 miles of that on through hikes this summer. Okay. Why don't you tell yeah. us a little bit about that? What, uh, what trails have you done this summer? So this summer I did two more obscure trails. I did the Tahoe Yosemite trail which I found in a book that was written in the 1980s. And uh, that was interesting because uh, a lot of it uses the PCT, but the sections that don't use the PCT were pretty gnarly as, term, as far as uh, bushwhacking and navigation go. So it was quite the adventure in a, a few of those wilderness. Really? So what is, the, what is the starting point and the ending point of the Tahoe Yosemite Trail? So it starts in Lake Tahoe at Meeks Bay, just above Emerald Bay, and it ends in Tuolumne Meadows at Yosemite. Okay, and what is the, what's the total distance of that trail? Uh, it's around 200 miles. I forget the total distance because I added so many peaks onto all my trips that the 200-mile hike turned into about a 350-mile hike. So <laughs> Nice. Yeah. And how long, how long did that take you? Um, I spent, I forget, I think about 17 days on that one and did 26 peaks at the same time. Wow. Wow. And when you are peak bagging and backpacking, uh, what does your gear look like? 
So I have my standard backpacking gear, and then usually I'll just drop that, drop my uh, my big stuff. Like I'll drop my my back, or sorry, my tent, my sleeping bag, my pad, and my stove usually, and just carry my food and my water while I go peak bagging, and then come back and get my stuff after. Got it. And with with your peak bagging, do you require any uh, climbing equipment, any any ropes or anything like that, or is it? Uh... I... Sorry. Um, so. I just kind of worked my way up this summer with peaks, starting with like easy uh, class one or two peaks with just hiking and like a little bit of scrambling around on rocks. And then as I got more comfortable through the summer, started doing harder and harder peaks. So I uh, worked my way up onto the stuff that some people use ropes on, but I didn't use ropes on anything this summer. For those of us who aren't familiar with uh, climbing, per se. Can you take us through what the different classes mean? Like what, what is class one, class two, et cetera? So just a general idea. Class one is just a trail or it's flat ground. Class two is usually talus, uh, walking around on rocks and stuff and using your hands for balance. Sometimes like a tiny bit of climbing, but just simple climbing. Uh, class three is climbing with your hands, but it's pretty safe climbing, generally safe. And uh, class four is a little bit more technical climbing with your hands and uh, a lot of exposure usually. So if you'd fall, you could get seriously injured or killed. Mm -hmm. Very, very good one, class four. And then fifth class and above is all technical climbing with ropes. Right. Class five climbing, I, I think, is when uh, we see folks on the, the side of mountains, uh, you know, with handholds and footholds and doing, like you said, very technical um, roped in moves unless your your name is alex honald yes exactly got it got it and when you say there's a exposure uh in in some of the class three and class four what what does exposure mean exposure means like a big drop uh just something that you could fall off of like a cliff would be exposed yeah. or like a very a very thin ridge <laughs> got it got it and so of the uh the peaks that you bagged this summer how, what were the majority how would you classify them what classes and and was there a lot of exposure so i started off um mostly looking at class two and a little bit of class three stuff and doing that but actually my third day on the tahoe yosemite trail i did my first class four which was uh, actually a traverse uh, across the whole crystal range from pyramid peak to mount price um so that broke me into the class four stuff and made me feel a little bit better about it moving forward. And so the majority of my trip, I kept it in class two or three until the last like two months, I started moving a lot more into the class four stuff. And any, any uh, moments where you're thinking, what have I gotten myself into here? Um, a couple times, but only because I got myself on the class five stuff, which, which made me start to realize like more what class four is, where I think I'm over my head and then I realize I'm not on the right route. And then once I find the class four stuff, it's like, okay, this isn't too bad compared to what I was just on. <laughs> <laughs> right. It's all, it's all comparative, right? Context. Yeah. yeah. Wow. And so when, when did you, I mean, how did you get into peak bagging and, and, and climbing like this? And did you have any kind of formal training to help prepare yourself to, to take these side adventures on the trail? Um, no formal training. Um, I'd say the biggest thing is in the last like two years, one of my buddies started bringing me out to Yosemite a lot and got me into climbing some of the peaks. Like we did half dome together 
and did Clouds Rest and Mount Hoffman, and that kind of piqued my interest. And I think Mount Hoffman was the one that really got me into looking at more peaks off trail because that had a little scrambling involved. So that got that piqued my interest, and uh, from there I actually found this app and this website called Peakbagger that I use, and that really got me into it. Like once I could start tracking all of my peaks and looking up more more information, and they actually have uh, maps and GPS recordings from people on there. So I started using that, and then I just got full on into it. Started. Uh, peak, peak bagging just around the Bay Area where I live to train for this summer for uh, for my big trips and yeah did about 70 or 80 peaks out here before I even started my trips this year so what kind of what kind of peaks are in the Bay Area what kind of altitudes and uh, you know, what are some of the names of those peaks so the altitude are much lower than what we have in the Sierra our highest peak in the Bay Area is around 4,000 feet versus the Sierras are 14,000 feet. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so it's a little different. So I had to get a little creative and like find hard routes for myself to train for the Sierra this summer while I was out here. So I wasn't taking many trails. I was uh, finding some pretty obscure ways up these peaks out here. Um, and some of the main major ones we have in the Bay Area, um, we have Mount Omenum, uh, Mount Tamalpais, Mount Diablo are some of the major ones that people may have heard of around here. Mm-hmm. And I actually did a lot of training uh, down near Big Sur in the Ventana Wilderness and Los Padres National Forest, which I think is some of the most rugged hiking on the planet. It's pretty insane out there. You can really? do hiking there. You can do hiking anywhere. Really? Why is that? <laughs> tell, tell us about that. Um, I think the biggest thing is that there's absolutely no funding for that entire forest, and it's a coastal range. So it is just so thick in chaparral and and coastal plants it's insane nothing's been maintained there in 50 years besides volunteer work so yeah it's it's pretty rugged out there and some people don't know but the the weather out there gets pretty extreme too it snows out there it's it gets a little crazy Uh, so the the have you been on the john muir trail before i was on portions of it this summer so you know that that's pretty well maintained. It's it's you're you're never unsure of you know am I on the path or am I not on the path. I mean you it's it's pretty clear cut that uh, oh, yeah. you're on the trail. So this this other one that you did, the, 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 there was times where you're like you know am am I on the trail? Do I did you need a machete or or anything else to to help you get through that? Yeah, we actually bring geared loppers out there to cut through the manzanitas and stuff like that. And there are plenty of times where I have no idea if I'm on the trail or anywhere near the trail. That's yeah, it gets crazy out there. So it was really good training for anywhere else. Yeah, it made the Sierra feel like a breeze. Nice. <laughs> and so, did you use a, a a compass or GPS or how did you kind of locate yourself and where you're supposed to be? Um, we use GPS out there. Okay. Yeah. And just route finding. I mean, there are times where I can't find anything and I'll just start bashing through bushes until I can find like a hint of a trail again. So. Mm-hmm. <laughs> nice. Yeah. And so with the, uh, with the Tahoe Yosemite trail that you, you talked about earlier, starting up, uh, uh, up at Tahoe and finishing in Tuolumne, um, what portions of that trail were, were well-maintained? What, what portions, where did you run into, into any trouble or, or, uh, moments of concern okay so actually when you ask 
the Ventana Wilderness, I think, helped me a lot for that trail because of all of the bushwhacking. So the first portion uh, goes through Desolation Wilderness, which is beautiful, perfectly maintained, awesome. Um, from there, it goes on up to Carson Pass. And after Carson Pass is where I started running into trouble. Um, it goes past Round Top Lake and Round Top Peak and down into Mokalumni Canyon. And that's where the, it's funny, that's where the signs started for the Tahoe Yosemite Trail. It's the only place on my whole trip I saw signs for it. And there was absolutely no sign of a trail anymore. So I, I followed Cairns for a while there and then the Cairns would disappear and I'd just be wandering aimlessly hoping to find the sign of a Cairn again or something and eventually pick up on something or just get lost for a while. So that was kind of a nightmare. And I think if I didn't have all of the experience that I had in Ventana lost this year, I probably would have lost it out there. So it helped a lot, just not panicking and keeping it together and just keep going on, try to find a hint of something again. And eventually ended up at my primitive camp out there called Camp Irene down in the bottom of Mokalumni Canyon. Got it. And so how, how much food did you bring? What was the, the weight of your pack? And were there any resupply points or you had to just bring everything with you from Tahoe uh, to, your, oh, to no, uh, Yosemite? No. Uh, so I brought on that, that trip, uh, I think it was about five to seven days of food at a time. So pretty heavy still. But I actually had my mom help me on that whole trip. So my mom actually is a big hiker too and kind of got back into it a little bit before me. She did half them two years ago. I did half them last year. And she actually did three peaks with me this year, which was cool. But uh, she wanted to be a part of it. So she met me at Carson Pass for my first resupply and did her first ever backpack. She backpacked one night with me to Round Top Lake and uh, camped up there with me, which was really cool. And then she also met me at Sonora Pass and then at Tuolumne Meadows at the end. So that was a lot of fun. And she did peaks with me at Sonora Pass as well and right before we started the trip. Nice. What was her impression of backpacking? Um, it was heavy. <laughs> she's used to her day pack. So, so she was using my old backpacking gear, which was a little heavy. So she's investing in some lightweight stuff for herself now. <laughs> nice. And did she do half dome with you, you said? She did half dome the year before me. Got it. With a few of her friends. So yeah, she was ahead of me. <laughs> it how many times have you done half dome? Was that your only time doing it or have you done it multiple times? That was my only time doing it. And then just went off running to higher peaks straight from there. Yeah. What did you think of half dome? When I did it, I thought it was terrifying. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Yes. I had a, uh, I had a buddy and his son do it the summer before I did it. And uh, you know, I said, Hey, how was it? Uh, what do I need to know? And their only advice to me was, yeah, you know, you should probably bring gloves, you know, for the cables that, that'll, that'll help you, but nothing else. There was nothing else shared. And so, uh, you know, I had heard about the cables of course, and I, I, I thought I had read somewhere that it was like 45 degrees is the angle, but you get there. It does not look like 45 degrees. It felt like yeah. seven, it felt like seventy degrees to me. Yeah, I've heard forty-five to sixty. Yeah. So <laughs> it gets up there. That was crazy. That was crazy. And mom, mom did fine with that. Yeah, yeah, she did it. Yeah, she's awesome. She's she's cool. That's incredible. That's great. Um, yeah, I brought, brought her on her first scramble this year. She did Mount Hoffman with me for my third time in this past year. I've done it. Mm -hmm. But I got her up there on some class two scrambling, which was cool. 
Nice. Let's talk about your backpacking gear. What does what your kit look like? Uh, so I have uh, Mossner gear, Mariposa 60 for my main pack. Um, I got that right before my trips this summer. I took it on just one four day before I started my through hike, and I love it. Absolutely love it. Um, for my sleeping pad, I use the Climate Static V. This is the second one of those I've had. I really like it. Um, I just actually used a buddy's. I forget what it was, but I, I think a Nemo the other day. It was really nice. I'm kind of looking at getting something new, maybe going into that. But worked great for what I was doing this summer. Um, for, let's see, what else do I got in there? My sleeping bag. I've got a Kelty, a 19-degree sleeping bag, which was fine for the entire summer, this year at least. It was mm -hmm. warm. Um, and that's it, I think, for my main stuff. Oh, and then my uh, Jetboil, which I just got this year. I freaking love that thing. Yeah, nice. Yeah, so like the entire year I was using the little fuel cubes and a little pot, and that was horrible. So this is that was a big upgrade. Big step up, nice. <laughs> yeah. So what's your go-to uh, go-to meal on the trail? Um, I actually love the dehydrated meals. So I'll usually I'll try to bring one of those at least one a night or every other night, and then besides that, I do a lot of ramens. Um, but not really the standard ramens. I have a Vietnamese market down the street from my house. So I get a lot of the like different kind of cool uh, Asian and Indian ones. So bring a lot of those for some variety. And then I do, uh, I love the chicken packets, the new chicken packets they have, similar to the, the tuna packets. Uh -huh. So I'll do barbecue chicken or uh, buffalo chicken and uh, mashed potatoes a lot the mashed potato powder nice you know i've heard more and more about the mashed potatoes over the last uh few guests that i've talked to and i have not tried that before i'm gonna have to add that to my to my my uh my go-to meals that sounds really good yeah they're great and they have tons of flavors now so nice and how handy is it having a vietnamese market down the street oh it's amazing <laughs> <laughs> can't complain very good did you also do the Sierra high route this summer? Uh, yes, I did most of it. So the smoke got really bad uh, when I was down in the Palisades. So that was where I called it. I did Mount Agassiz up there and I was falling all over myself, stumbling around in the smoke. And I was like, all right, this is getting dangerous. And I'm out here doing peaks. So I need to take some, some time off of that area. But yeah, so I went to all, I started Tuolumne Meadows where I finished the Tahoe Yosemite Trail and did the portion from there to the Palisades. Okay. And how, how long is the Sierra high route and how does it differ from uh, say the, the, the JMT? It, it, does it, is it kind of run parallel to the JMT? It runs, yes. Yeah. Just parallel to the JMT and really close actually. Um, when you're hiking on the JMT and looking up at the peaks above you, that's where the Sierra high route runs mostly. So it runs mostly up on the peaks, not on trail. There are traces of a trail now from so many people doing it in areas, but uh it's yeah just the higher version of the jmt it it mostly runs at i think nine or ten thousand feet majority of the trail wow <laughs> yeah or even higher yeah it's it's pretty amazing though i loved it and i would highly recommend it to anybody it was a lot easier to navigate than i expected and just absolutely gorgeous and no people i saw two people the entire time out there 
Yeah, I was going to ask you how many people you saw on the uh, the Tahoe Yosemite Trail. Uh, the Tahoe Yosemite Trail, I didn't see anybody going the same direction as me. It was all PCT hikers going the opposite direction, section hiking in the PCT. Got it. And you said you you read about this uh, in a, was it a 1980s book? Yeah, a book from 1988 that I found in a, at a used bookstore out in Gilroy out here. And uh, yeah, had this guy made this trail and or picked up on the history of a trail that was being built before the PCT, before World War One, and he kind of mapped it out and did it and wrote a book about it. So I tried to to recreate that, and a few sections were just a little more hairy than they were 30 years ago. So, oh, that's an that's an adventure right there. Nice. Oh yeah, yeah. Have you have well, you on those it? sections? I didn't see anyone actually. The portions with no PCT, I didn't see a trace of humans for years. Even. <laughs> really? Wow. Yeah. No, trace no, evi- of no evidence that anybody had been there. No, I mean even this the camp that I eventually found that was covered in bushes had a a wrought iron stove from probably fifty hundred years ago. Who knows? Yeah. No no signs of anyone being there for a long time. So. <laughs> Wow. Um, jumping around a little bit, back to the, uh, the Sierra high route. Um, what were some of the, the peaks that you bagged along that trail that some of our uh, listeners who are very familiar with the Sierras and, and the John Muir Trail might, uh, might know about? Um, let's see. The first few days, um, I did some cool ones up in the Ritter Range and Upper Cathedral area. Uh, Mount Florence in the Upper Cathedral area. And then uh, Electra Peak, Forrester Peak, Mount Davis, um, which are right next to Mount Ritter and Mount Banner. Um, so did those first few days, Red and White, or Red Slate Mountain. That's one I would highly recommend to anyone, anyone out there on the JMT or, or the Sierra High Route for a side trip. Uh, Red Slate Mountain on McGee Pass. It's a 13,000 foot peak with amazing views in all directions. And there's a trail right up to the pass and then an easy just uh, use trail up to the peak from there. Okay. So where exactly on the John Muir Trail is that? I, me, me, um, it's just south south of uh, Red's Meadow. Okay. So between Red's Meadow and the VVR. Got it. Yeah. And is there a, a trail sign or how do you, how do you yeah, find there the... would be a sign for McGee Pass. Got it. And it's Red Slate Mountain? That is Red Slate Mountain, yes. Yes, that's what I would recommend. Um, Other ones out there, I'm not really sure. Um, What else did I do on there? A lot of stuff around Lake Italy did uh, Mount Hilgard and Mount Julius Caesar. Um, Yeah, those are... Some of the big ones I did near the near the John Muir Trail, oh, Mount Goddard, um, from from Wanda Lake. That was another amazing one. Yeah, tell us about Mount Goddard. I'm interested to hear about that one. Um, that one was awesome. I camped at Wanda Lake to do that one, and took a a classic route. So a lot of my routes I find in the RJC Core Guide. Uh, it's called High Sierra Peaks Passes and Trails, and has tons of routes for all of these mountains, all written out though, not really many pictures. So he had a classic route in there for it called Stars Route. Um, it was first ascended by Walter Starr Jr. And I decided to take that route up and that was awesome. It uh, comes up from Davis Lakes, uh, straight up a ridge to like a 
a smaller peak just uh, south of Mount Goddard and then up to Mount Goddard from there. And that just had amazing views into uh, the Ionian Basin and Evolution Basin, which if you haven't heard of the Ionian Basin, I advise you to look it up and take a trip out there. How do you, how do you spell that? I-O-N-I-A-N. Ionian yeah. Basin. Okay. Yeah, I can, I can only imagine looking at the at evolution, the evolution valley, uh, evolution basin from from up high. That must be incredible. Oh, yeah, it's it was beautiful. How about uh, did you say Darwin? Darwin, I have not done yet. Darwin, okay. I'd love to do it. That's that's on my, my list for next year. That's a class four, a harder class four one. Yeah, so. it, it looks like it. That's uh, that's pretty, pretty, pretty intimidating. Yeah. Yeah. Anything with uh, Findome over in the Ray Lakes area? No, actually, no. I, so I didn't make it that far. I kind of, so from Goddard, I uh, went down to Bishop Pass and uh, did Mount Agassiz and then from there left the trail. So that was my, that was where I ended it this year. And are you taking your trips uh, pretty much solo or do you have a, a pack of buddies you go with? So all of my through hiking I did solo. Um, I actually met up with a girl that I peak bag with on top of Mount Goddard, which was kind of cool. Her and her friend did it from the opposite side on her friend's birthday. And I came up from Wanda Lakeside and met them on the summit at seven in the morning, which was really cool. Um, was that coincidence so or was that planned? That was planned. Okay. Yeah, that was planned. Yeah, they were on a separate little short through hike and they knew I was coming through. So we planned to meet up on a peak. And uh, so, yeah, I did that with them. But besides that, the whole first half of my summer was all solo. So, yeah, it's probably about six, six weeks by myself out there. Okay. And what do, you, uh, what do you learn about yourself out there on the trail, out there on your own? Um, yeah, I learned about myself. I, I enjoyed pushing myself out there and not having anyone to complain to and not having anybody to help me out, having to figure stuff out on my own, figure out how to just do stuff on my own, really. Uh huh. And, and not, and not have anyone to complain to. That's a big thing. <laughs> yeah. You, you you've mentioned that a couple of times. That's a, that's a unique perspective. What, uh, what is so appealing about not having anybody to complain to? Um, I don't know. I just, it, it's teaching, taught me how to keep myself more accountable, I guess. There's a lot of days that I'll do peaks and then I'll start moving to my next camp and be like, Oh, I could just stop here for the night. I could just stop here. But a big thing for me is I have everything planned out. I plan everything. I map everything beforehand and have everything for what I know I'll be able to, to accomplish. And I know if I start varying off of that, I'm going to add more miles on the next day. I'm not going to be able to reach my goals. So I just, put the hammer down on myself say, Nope, you're going where you said you're going to go. We're camping where we said we were. <laughs> nice. That, that's a, that's, that's a, uh, I don't know if it's a unique approach. I think I like that approach, but I know that when I've planned stuff out uh, invariably, I, I do not hit uh, my marks and I, you know, the plan changes starting on day one. Yeah. <laughs> I've, I've just, I, I think I've got it pretty down pretty well on the, uh, the mapping stuff out now and knowing what I can do and what I can handle. It matches up perfect. So Nice. And where do you, where do, you do your research? How do you plan? So I do my research um, reading all on uh, trip reports for peaks, really. Even just for the trail stuff, I find a lot of good information on people's trip reports for peaks. So I use uh, Summit Post, uh, which is a website for climbing and peak bagging. 
Uh, peakbagger.com, which is, I think, the most helpful tool for anything out there. And then Bob Birdtrip reports, which um, if you're not familiar, he's the guy that started the Sierra Challenge, which is a peak bagging challenge every year up here. Um, and he's summited like something like two or 3,000 peaks in the Sierra. So he's got trip reports for everything. So I'll read his stuff, uh, check out Peak Bagger, people's trip reports, and then I'll go on all trails and use their map editor and make a map. So I'll draw it all out and have it set for myself. Nice. Very thorough. Yeah. That's my process. <laughs> very good. Hey, we're going to take a quick break and we'll come back and continue this discussion of peak bagging in the Sierra. Stay tuned. We'll be right back. Hey, this is Mac from Halfway Anywhere and you're listening to the John Freaking Muir Pod. And welcome back, talking to Mike Toffee about uh, peak bagging and understand that uh, you may have run into some weather issues uh, right before you got to Mount Goddard. What was, what was that all about? So uh, I was heading back into the Ionian Basin, uh, kind of a stranger way than most people go. Um, I headed straight out from Lake Sabrina to uh, what's called the, the Haeckel Wallace Coal. Uh, just a big steep hole between Mount Haeckel and Mount Wallace and plan to do Mount Wallace and then hike down the other side into Evolution Basin and get ready for Goddard the next day. Um, but on my way out, uh, clouds started coming in, started getting dark. And the two previous days, they had gotten dark, but rain never, never came. So I didn't think too much of it. Got to... Uh, Got to my coal and was like, okay, I'll push. I'll, I'll just go up it. I think the weather will hold. And I got about 500 feet from the summit of the peak, actually. I was at, I think, about like 12 or 13,000 feet. And it started raining on me. And I got a little bit worried. was like, okay, I'll just hunker down under this boulder and wait it out. And as I started waiting it out, and then it starts to hail. And I'm like, crap. I'm like, maybe I should just push up and go over this thing. I only have 500 more feet. Just go over and get down and get to safety. So I get out from under this rock, start climbing straight up, very steep sand and, and uh, granite that's wet now, inhale, I'm pushing up that already dangerous. And then I just hear it, the loudest explosion I've ever heard at the same time as I see this huge flash right next to me, like probably a mile away at Clyde's fire, hit the ridge line. And I just turned around and beelined straight down the mountain. It just like my heart just stopped. It was like, oh my God, I'm going to die up here. So it just went straight down steep, wet granite and sand, just flying down this mountain, rocks falling everywhere. Get down to the bottom and set up my camp, my tent as fast as I can as there's rock fall coming down now from both sides of this pole. There's, I just hear constantly rock fall, rock fall, rock fall. And get my tent set up, get in there. And then the entire night just had to sit through here in Rockfall, here in Lightning, hoping I'm not going to get struck. And I'm completely exposed up there, just out at a tarn below the peak. So that was, it was intense. It was, it was terrifying. And it really shook me. I was feeling invincible leading up to that. Just nothing really bad had happened. I'd done all these peaks. I'd come so many miles. And all of a sudden, it was just so humbling. Like, holy crap. Like, I could have just died up there. That was crazy. Wow. So, yeah, you- that was an eye-opener. Did you get much sleep that night? None. <laughs> yeah. Maybe a few hours in the morning. 
Yeah, we uh, had a couple of buddies. We did uh, the southern half of the John Muir Trail back in 2015, and we had uh, went over Forrester Pass, which was an experience in itself. But that night we camped out at uh, uh, the Tyndall, Tyndall Creek. And, you know, not a cloud in the sky. We set up camp, and I actually debated whether or not to put on the rain fly, but I did. And good thing because probably about nine o'clock, this thunderstorm rolled in with, uh, you know, thunderclaps that started off about 30 seconds, uh, you know, distant from, from when the, the lightning flash happened. Yeah. And pretty soon, you know, as the night wore on, those thunderclaps were instantaneous with the lightning and it was just right on top of us. And the ranger the next morning said, oh my gosh, that's the, uh, the worst storm that's come through here in, since I've been here. And that, that was like 15 years. So yeah, it, it could be it could be pretty uh, nerve wracking when that kind of stuff goes on. I can only imagine at altitude how, how high you were and how exposed you were, how how even more uncomfortable that would be. Yeah, and it was the worst storm of the summer. All summer I'd had rainstorms with like thirty minutes to an hour of rain, and this one was six straight hours of hail and lightning. And it was actually the storm uh, that started a lot of the fires across the state. Those record number of lightning strikes. Wow, so yeah, you were right there at uh, you were right there at ground zero. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Wow. <laughs> now you mentioned Clyde Spire. Do you know? Uh, do you know any of the stories or the history behind the naming of uh, a lot of the features out in the Sierras? Uh, yeah, some of them. Uh, Clyde Spire is named after a Norman Clyde, uh, one of the early explorers in the Sierra, and who has, I think, more first ascents in the Sierras than anyone else. Yeah. But he's a big hero of mine. <laughs> yeah, you should take a listen. There's an episode uh, early on in the podcast where we devoted to uh, Norman Clyde, and the title of the episode is uh, "Dark and Stormy Night," and it's a uh, it kind of details how he was fired from his uh, principal position in Independence, and uh, how that kind of freed him up to start living in the Sierras and and doing these first ascents and spending all the time there. So he he was an incredible character and his first ascent list is, is pretty impressive. Yeah. Do you have any first ascents? Do I have any first ascents? Yeah. Actually one, I believe uh, this year, uh, North mountain, just West of Hetch Hetchy reservoir. Um, My family actually has a cabin out there. So I've done a lot of hiking in that area. And this is like kind of an obscure peak. Not many people are over there anyway. And there is a trail on the opposite side of it that I think they built in the 1890s. I've read some history on it and couldn't find anybody ever scaling the uh, south face of this thing. So on my birthday this year, I went out by myself, mapped it out, and then climbed that on the south face of it to the East Ridge. So as far as I know, the south face of the East Ridge on North Peak, North Mountain, I've got a first ascent. There you go. And now there it's published. It's, it's history here on the podcast. First ascent from Mike Toffee. Very good. There you go. Nice. <laughs> what else do you know about Norman Clyde? I'm, I'm, I'm fascinated by these characters from, uh, from, from back in the day in the Sierras. Um, I know that he was actually just as famous for his mountain rescues as he was for his peak bagging. He was good at finding people and good at traveling out there and, and searching. So I thought that was really cool. And that's something that I'm like kind of interested in, like maybe going toward certain rescue stuff. Yeah. High mountain rescue. That's gotta be exciting. Dangerous. Yeah. Yeah. yeah and rewarding. So. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, I, I read the story about how he recovered the body of uh, Walter Starr Jr. Yeah, I actually just ordered that book. Yeah, <laughs> very interesting. Yeah, yeah, we climbed actually uh, Clyde Minaret this year too, which was awesome. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and what made it awesome? Describe it for us. That actually was my first, that was my hardest peak I've probably done, uh, or one of the top two all summer. It's a solid class four peak and uh, had about a thousand feet of like exposed class three or class four scrambling up the top. And uh, it was just an amazing feeling to summit that one. Like I did not think in a million years I would be climbing that this year. And just to be able to do it and getting up on that summit just felt unreal. Just crazy. And what could you see from the top of there? What were, you, what were the views? Uh, the views there are uh, straight down to Cecil Lake, Iceberg Lake, all of Ansel Adams Wilderness, and then back across uh, the Ritter Range up to Mount Ritter and uh, Banner Peak, and then all of the minarets behind you. It's, yeah, it's an amazing view. It's crazy. Nice. And are there, are there uh, I know at, at, at like top of Whitney, and at uh, Muir Hut, there's, there's trail registers. Are there any kind of registers uh, at the tops of these peaks at all? Uh, yes. So most of the peaks I did this year, if I could help it, were uh, Sierra Peak Section Peaks, uh, which is a list that the Sierra Club came up with of what they think are the best peaks or the coolest and most fun climbs or best views. So that is the majority of what I was doing this summer, and almost all of them have a register. And if they don't, you can mark it or put it in your report on peak bagger and the next person will bring one up. So yeah, either they have them and I actually placed a few this year too, which was kind of cool. Nice. Yeah. Can you tell us a little bit about uh, Mount Ritter? Cause that was the one that really caught my eye on your Instagram account was the pictures from the top of, of Ritter, you know, us John Muir trail hikers, we've gone through and we've, we've hiked uh, and camped at, at Garnet. We've had, we've hiked and camped uh, at thousand Island, but I was struck by your photo from the top of Ritter looking down at both Garnet and, uh, and Thousand Island and having those two lakes in the same shot from that perspective was just gorgeous. Incredible. Yeah. That was Banner Peak actually. Banner, yeah. It, Banner. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. That one was amazing. And that's one that actually wasn't too hard. Both of those actually. And I'd recommend those to anybody out in that area. If you just have a little bit extra time to, to hike behind those, those peaks. So from the John Muir Trail, you can take Glacier Pass over next to uh, Thousand Island Lake, just north of it. And uh, from there, you get to Lake Catherine. And uh, Lake Ca- Catherine is just an easy walk up, uh, low angle glacier. You just need micro spikes uh, to get up to the saddle between Ritter and Banner. And from there, there's an easy class two scramble up to uh, Banner Peak, which we didn't take. We took the class four ridge and took class two uh, talus down. But anybody could walk up that talus, up the class two. Next time I'm on the next time I'm on that portion of the the JMT, I've got to take that side trip. That uh, yeah, that it was just an incredible photo shot, uh, a photo yeah. shot that I need to have. Mm-hmm. And then Mount Ritter too. We actually did a different way than almost anybody does it. Uh, we went a route that I found in my RJC core guide that was ascended by Theodore Solomons in the 1800s from the backside and it's actually class two as well. So it's an easy, pretty easy walk up 
but just a few more miles. You just have to walk around back by the Ritter Lakes and then up the west side. There's a route up. So that was kind of cool going that way. And a little history about that route also. Uh, when Theodore Salmons went up there, he took the first ever high quality photograph of the High Sierra from that peak, from that route, which is kind of cool. Nice. Speaking of Theodore Solomons, have you ever done the Theodore Solomons Trail? I just heard about it this year, and I'm really interested in that as well. Yeah, I didn't know there was another one. <laughs> yeah, I had a, a good time talking to um, the starter of SoCal Hiker. Okay. Uh, who, who started the, uh, the six-pack of Peaks Challenge. And he told me about the Theodore Solomons Trail. I had never heard of it before. Uh, I had talked to him, but he uh, told me there's a lot of bushwhacking involved. It's not as well-maintained as the John Muir Trail. And it was actually built kind of as an, uh, of course, it's named after him. So it was built in honor of him, but it was, it was built as a, a, a route that's kind of parallel to the JMT to maybe uh, uh, um, ease up the traffic on the, on the JMT. It was going to be an alternate route that people could do. But it hasn't been well maintained, and there's a lot of, of of bushwhacking involved. So yeah, it might be right up your alley. Yeah, and I've heard it's a little longer, a little more elevation gain than JMT. Right. So, yeah, and it's a whole another set of peaks for me to do on the west side. So that's right. That's right. <laughs> Very yeah. good. Yeah. All right. Hey, let's cool. let's see if I can pin you down on the top five list here. Let's let's talk about the top five. Uh, your your favorite peaks from this summer, or maybe your most challenging peaks, or maybe those are the same. Okay, yeah, so I'm, I put together a little list. Um, it was really hard to narrow down five, but Clyde Minaret's definitely up there. Uh, that, that'd be my number one, I think. That was the one I was mo most proud of myself for doing. Um, Clyde Minaret, number two, I'd say uh, Red and White Mountain, which is actually right next to Red Slate Mountain. Um, but that was another one uh, with a really exposed Class 3-4 ridge that was first ascended by Norman Clyde, actually. The Northeast Ridge. Uh, that was an awesome, awesome one. And then uh, Middle Finger Peak, uh, which I thought was kind of funny. There's Finger <laughs> Peak, and then the Middle Finger Peak is actually the high point, the highest summit out there. So Middle Finger Peak, that was in Northern Yosemite, and that was a fourth class uh, climb. And it was absolutely awesome, the climbing, and amazing views. It's directly across from Matterhorn Peak. So that one was really cool. Um, and then Whirl Mountain, actually in the same area as Matterhorn and Middle Finger. That was a really cool one because you kind of get to climb through like a little cave almost, like 12,000 feet up on a Sierra summit. Uh, there's a huge chalk stone with a little cave, yeah, that you literally have to climb into and up about 30 to 40 feet through this cave. Oh, that sounds cool. Yeah, so that was a really fun one, Whirl Mountain. And then, uh, for the fourth one, I kind of just picked this a whole little range, but the Cathedral Range in Yosemite. I did most of the summits out there this year, and I loved all of them. So that's like uh, Mount Lyell and McClure, uh, Simmons, Florence, Amelia Earhart, and then the lower Cathedral stuff too. I did uh, Tresseter, Columbia Finger, Echo Peaks, Coxcomb, and Unicorn Peak, and those all of those were amazing, and they're all Class Three Four stuff. So nice. Did those you do? Did you do Cathedral Peak? Cathedral Peak, it's funny, I didn't, and I've been, like, obsessing over it the last two weeks. I really wish I had done it or read a little more beta before I, I did these last two trips out there, 
because both Tresseter Peak South and Cathedral Peak, I opted out of because I thought they were a little too hard for me. And then after I got back and looked at Bob Bird trip reports and pictures again, I'm like, dang it, I totally could have done those. So yeah. I cannot wait to get back and do those ones next year. Yeah, Cathedral Peak, just looking at it, it looks like a, you know, pretty, like a needle sticking up. It looks like it'd be pretty, pretty darn tough. But I think I read that, you know, I wondered if it had ever been climbed. And I think I read that it had been climbed. And I think Norman Clyde uh, climbed that as well. Uh, John Muir actually has the first ascent on that one. That's right, John Muir. John Muir, you're right. Yep. Yeah. But yeah, there, there's, a, there's two class four routes on it and then tons of technical class five routes on it. But everything in that area, the lower cathedral ranges are all kind of needle-like like that. They're all challenging. Unicorn Peak, Coxcomb, Tresseter, and all the Echo Peaks, they're all very, uh, very narrow. <laughs> <laughs> nice. And speaking of that cave that you climbed through, have you ever done the High Sierra Trail? I have not done the High Sierra Trail. So I know a, of it. You know of it. So you, 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 there's a, a part on the trail where you actually go – they, they've carved into the mountain uh, so that the, the trail goes uh, through like an, an arch, an extended arch, which is a pretty cool feature. And when we did it, it was actually the time of the season where it, at the back of that canyon, there was an ice column that was coming down from the, the top of the mountain and actually covered up the trail. And you had to go behind the ice column. So it's, uh, it was actually melting and water was running back there. It was, it was a really cool uh, moment for us. That was, it was nice. Yeah. That's awesome. Yeah. Uh, back to Clyde. Do you know how he lost his job as principal? No. Uh, you haven't heard that story. Uh-uh. So he was, uh, he was the principal at independence high school in the town of independence. And every, every moment he had, he would try and go out on the weekends and, and just climb in the Sierras. That was his passion, of course. But um, I guess the year before on Halloween, a bunch of seniors had come to the school and had vandalized the school. And so this year he said, that's not going to happen. You know, he kind of got wind that there was going to be another senior prank and, and they were going to vandalize the school. And so he waited at the school uh, on, on a dark uh, Halloween evening. And sure enough, these kids showed up and as the car approached, he, 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 you know, stepped out from behind a tree and, and, uh, you know, came out into the street and he says, you guys, you know, we're not going to do this this year. And, and they kept on coming. He pulled out a gun and he shot, uh, not at the car, but near the car. He kind of shot into the ground to the side of the car to try and scare them away and say, you know, this is not going to happen. And uh, his good fortune was that the bullet hit a rock and actually hit the car. And wow. so they, the, the kids tore off, they left, you know, they weren't going to deal with crazy Mr. Clyde, <laughs> but uh, they went home and told their parents. And uh, after a whole bunch of uh, hustle and bustle, basically the, the sheriff uh, forced him to resign his position, which then led to his incredible career in the Sierras. That's awesome. That's funny. I have not heard that. Yeah. It's funny. He was, he was quite a character, quite a character. So if you were going to uh, give advice to someone who has been maybe a traditional hiker out there, but is thinking about, you know, they've listened to this episode and they're thinking, I, I, this sounds pretty incredible doing some peak bagging. What advice, how do you, how does someone get started in peak bagging? Um, well, I'd say you kind of got to start this on easy stuff. Um, start off on the, the peaks that have trails up to them. 
And if, if you like that and like your views you're getting up there and the feeling of being on top of the world, uh, I'd say start, look, start looking up either on Summit Post or on Peakbagger. Um, Peakbagger is really good. It's a really cool app. Um, you can actually go on it and just click on the map and it'll show you all of the peaks around you. And any of those you can click on and it shows everyone else's trip reports from them or GPX tracks. So you can pop it up right there, pop open someone's GPX track and follow it right up to the, the summit of the mountain. Um, so that's a great place to start and a great resource for peak bagging. Um, and then also the Sierra Peak section list is something I'd highly recommend people looking into. It's a great place to start for uh, looking at peaks to climb. It shows you a lot of, a lot of uh, kind of give you a taste of everywhere in the Sierra. There's peaks all up and down it that are supposed to be either the best climbs or the best views. They're on there for one reason or the other. Mm-hmm. Nice. Now we've, we've had folks on the, the uh, podcast who have done the John Muir trail, 211 miles uh, in as uh, short a time as six days and others that have taken, you know, four weeks. And so uh-huh. if, if Mike Toffee was planning a John Muir trail through hike and was also planning to uh, take advantage of all the peak bagging available in that area of the Sierras, how long would that trip take and approximately how many miles would you add on to that? Do you think? Um, I would estimate about two and a half, three weeks, I'd say three weeks and probably at least another half on the miles, another hundred miles, 150 miles. So what is it? 210? Yeah. About 210, 211. I'd say about, it'd probably be about 350 miles. I would say. With what I did this year on the Sierra High Road and the Tahoe Yosemite Trail, those were about where my numbers were. Okay. And that's 17, 18 days. That's about, what, 20-mile days? Yeah. So I would – yeah, probably – I actually only moved camp 10 or 15 miles a day most days, a few days close to 20. But, yeah, I wouldn't move camp that far and then do about 5 to 15 miles on peaks each day. Is that a, a future adventure for you? Have you ever thought of that? Uh, what john muir trail and all the side trips oh yeah so actually uh when you asked that i was talking to my mom about hiking next summer and she actually wants to do a through hike and was asking if i would do that with her and she could stay on the trail and i could go off and do my peaks and stuff so i told her yeah that's something i'm definitely interested in she's got a train but <laughs> wow your mom rocks yeah she's awesome very good does she have a trail name she doesn't. She needs one. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> absolutely. You, you want to give her a shout out here on the pod? Uh, yeah. Shout out mom. Shout out Cindy Toffee. Cindy Toffee. All right. <laughs> Very good. Now have all of your hikes and peaks come in the uh, state of California or have you had a chance to uh, go out of state or out of the country even to, to do additional peak bagging? So I haven't been out of the country yet, but uh, this year when all of the fires were going on, the smoke got so bad that we left the Inyo National Forest and headed up to Tahoe. The day we left Inyo, they closed that. Then we get up to Tahoe and the smoke was getting horrible there. So we left there and headed into deeper into Nevada the day after they closed Tahoe. And uh, we'd heard from a friend that lived out in Reno that we'd met through Peak Bagger that there was some cool peaks out in the Ruby Mountains with some good scrambling. So uh, we headed out that way, downloaded some trip reports, and uh, slept in the car a few nights, and ended up doing 
11, 11 to 13,000 foot peaks in uh, the Ruby Mountains and Snake Mountains in uh, Eastern Nevada, which was really cool. Both of those were beautiful areas. Uh, the, let's see, the Great Basin uh, National Park is in the Snake Mountains, and then the Ruby Mountains is just as own wilderness. Okay, and where are those relation, in relation to, uh, say, Vegas? Are they past Vegas? For uh, way north. So the Ruby Mountains are on the northeast corner, like on the borders of Idaho and Utah. And uh, Great Basin is a couple of hundred miles south of there, just on the eastern border of Nevada. Nevada and Utah, sorry. Right, right. Any, any uh, desire to do any peak bagging in Utah? I understand there's incredible uh, opportunities there. Yes, I actually can't wait to get back out there. I took a trip just to Zion and Bryce uh, this year, um, at the beginning of the year, and did one one kind of obscure peak in Utah, but would like to go back and do a ton there. There were so many I saw and wanted to go back and do, just in the Zion and uh, Grand Escalante areas. All right. How about, have you heard of the Hey Duke Trail? I have, actually, yeah. Yeah, I saw a little yeah. documentary on that. That looks pretty crazy. It looks uh, yeah. like something that might appeal to you. Yeah, I watched that, and that's actually something that interests me. I would, I would like to do something like that. All right. Any, uh, any endurance uh, athletics in your in your history? Have you done any kind of uh, long distance running or trail running or anything like that? Um, I actually just got into trail running this year, and I haven't done any super long distance trail runs. But I did do a really long day hike just to see if I could do it with two of my buddies. Um, we have a trail out here in the Bay Area called Skyline to the Sea Trail. It runs from Saratoga over the Santa Cruz Mountains to Waddell Beach. And we started at the beach, hiked into Saratoga over the Santa Cruz Mountains, and back to the beach in a day. It was 50.7 miles, and we did it in 20 hours. So that was the longest hike I've ever done, and it was insane. Um, but that was actually before I'd done all this stuff. So I would like to do something like that again and see if I could do it faster or easier. Right. Wow. 50 miles in 20 hours. How, how did your body take that? I couldn't walk for two days after. I had shin splints and my hamstrings were toast. Wow. <laughs> I bet. I yeah. bet. I only bring up the trail running because I always try and uh, work into as many episodes as I can. Something about the Barkley marathons. Have you heard about that? Oh, yeah. That's insane. That's insanity yeah. right there. Yeah, that's something that maybe one day, maybe one day. <laughs> nice. I've been trying to find people who have, who have run it, who'd be willing to come on, but I've been unsuccessful thus far. I did talk to Hunter Lining, Leininger, who was uh, uh, a member of um, AR Georgia in the world's toughest race over in Eco Challenge Fiji. It was on Amazon. And he got, I think he, he got invited or he, he applied uh, to the Barkley marathons and was accepted, but uh, actually turned it down because he had other, something else going on at the time. So oh, yeah, I, I, I need to talk to somebody who has done the Barkley and uh, lived to tell about it. Yeah. Yeah. Nice. Yeah. All right. Hey Mike, you know where we are? Where are we? We are at the time where I ask you, what's your pro tip inside of the week? All right. What can you share with our listeners that's going to make their next adventure that much better? Um, I would say two things for the peaks. The Definitely that Peak Bagger app I would recommend for everybody. Like I'm big in the technology thing, and I actually 
think it helps a ton. I mean, I was able to get a ton done this year and I credit that for a lot of it. Um, and then also approach shoes, which are a big thing that everybody I was peak bagging with this summer or almost everybody um, use approach shoes, which are kind of a combination of hiking boots and climbing shoes. Um, they made them originally for climbers to hike into their climbs and then be able to do some of the scrambling. But for people doing peaks, it's absolutely perfect. So I highly recommend looking into uh, approach shoes as well if you want to get into the class three, four stuff. All right. Very good. So there you have it. That's it. Episode 46 is in the books. I hope our listeners enjoyed our time with Mike. And I want to thank him for joining us this week. Mike, how can our listeners keep up with you on social media and where can they find updates on your latest adventures? Uh, you can find me on Instagram or Facebook. Just my name, Mike Toffee. Uh, that's T-O-F-F-E-Y. Um, or also a uh, peak bagger. I want you on peak bagger. Just look up my name, Michael Toffee and follow all the peaks i've been doing nice remember to check out the pod on social media as well we are on facebook youtube instagram and twitter and if you have comments or clips you want to share you can send it to me at john at gmail.com also if you are enjoying the podcast take just a minute and leave us a review on apple podcasts and if you're not enjoying the pod well just go ahead and keep that to yourself right mike right <laughs> all right that's a wrap from the john freaking mirror studio any final thoughts mike um enjoy the trails out there guys <laughs> well said but before we go this week i have a special bonus for you joining us today for a spooky story from the appalachian trail is faithful listener and new contributor to the john freaking mirror pod matt d take it away matt and tell us a scary story Hi, I'm Matt Davis, and y'all are listening to the John Frickin' Muir Podcast. So, a little bit to start off with, um, a little bit about me. Um, my name's Matt Davis. I live in the southern United States in the great state of Tennessee, um, and I love the outdoors. I love hiking, backpacking, fishing, camping, uh, and recently, I wouldn't say recently, three to four years ago, I got into bushcraft. Um... I've been doing hiking and fishing and RV camping um, practically my whole life. RV camping since I was two, probably, because um, we had a camper as a family back then. And hiking since I was two, because my dad would literally carry me in a backpack. Not like it was a backpack that was meant to carry kids up a mountain. Like it had, it had a carrier hooked into it. Um, so... I got into bushcraft because cause that's the main thing I do now. You know, I do those other things, but um, four to five years ago, I lived in the city with my family, and I started watching Joe Robinette. And I didn't have the area, because I lived in the city, to go out and build a shelter or practice any of this, because we lived in the city. I'm talking about city, city. Um, it was a nice place, but no woods anywhere near. Um, you had to drive probably a good 30, 45 minutes to go to the woods. And, you know, even at the age 16, uh, I don't have my license yet since I got my permit late. Um, I don't have a drive. I don't, I know how to drive, but I don't have a car yet. Um, or I'm learning how to drive, but I don't have a car yet. And I didn't have a car back then, so I couldn't go to those areas when I wanted to. So... 
skip a year after that, when I started watching Joe Robinette, about three, forty years ago, um, we moved further out into the county, out of the city, and really blessed to have woods behind the house. So this is where I spend a lot of my time. I come out here, I'm actually sitting at my bushcraft shelter at while I'm recording this. It's about the only quiet place I could find. Um, so I come out here, I camp out here, hammock camp, tent camp. I've camped at one of my shelters out here and soon to be tarp camping. That'll be really fun. But, um, and I also thought, you know, why now that I have the place to do it, why not get a camera and I'll record some and I'll put it up on YouTube. So I started making my own YouTube channel. If you want to check that out, it is Matt Davis, Explore the Outdoors. Um, if you want to check that out, go ahead. I'm also on Instagram, Matt D underscore Explore the Outdoors. But, um, so that's enough about me. I'm going to tell you a story. It's a little bit of a creepy story. I'm probably going to have to make it a little quicker than I want it to be because I'm going to have to go somewhere in a second. Um, it's a creepy story, and I've had some creepy experiences. I'm not a big conspiracy theory person. I just think they're neat to look at. Um, I do not believe in big Bigfoot. <laughs> I'm sure people who follow me on Instagram think that I uh, believe in Bigfoot. They probably think I'm crazy, but uh, I do believe Bigfoot once existed. Because, uh, you know, they find these skulls... And they say, oh, it's humans because evolution. No, I, I, it's, I bet they're Bigfoot. That's what I say. I don't, I don't believe we came from apes. Um, but we, um, I was going backpacking. I went backpacking with my brother and my, uh, and my friend Max. We went to, on the Appalachian Trail, on Carver's Gap in Tennessee, right on the border of Tennessee and North Carolina. So we're hiking up there, and up there there are three balds. There, um, you have the first bald, which is a mile hike. You have the second bald, which I'd say is a good four to five miles. And then you have the third bald, which I think from the starting point is about eight to ten miles. Um, so we get there. On the way driving up the mountain, there's this big black cloud. It's just huge. And it's covering the mountain. We're thinking, oh crap, we're going to have to cancel this. And so, and they're trying, my friends, you know, they're going to, and my brother, they're probably going to listen to this. But, you know, we, they kept saying, I don't know about this, man. I don't know. And I just wanted to really do this. I really wanted to camp because I've always wanted to camp up there. So I was like, you know, let's just drive up there and see what it's like up there. If it's raining, we'll come back down. We'll, we'll plan it some other time. So we get up there and... We just see this black cloud, and it is just so cool going up there. We stop at a gas station, and we're pumping each other up. We're playing Eminem. Uh, I think this, I don't. I'm not a big rap. Uh, I don't really like rap that much, but I do like Eminem and you know, that '90s rap. But I think it's Survival of the Fittest, and we're like driving up listening to that, and then all of a sudden we're listening to Voodoo Child by. Um, by Jimi Hendrix, and that's who, that's the kind of music I like, I love rock and roll, classic rock, and pop, and classic pop, and 70s music, 70s, 80s, 60s, just classic stuff, um, and about the only rap I like, I don't like any of this trash stuff today, I, about, I only like the, the 90s, um, rap, I think those are the best, but, um, 
we uh we get up to the mountain finally we're pumping each other up we're listening to that voodoo child by Jimi hendrix driving up and uh we get up there and facing the trail is clear so i'm thinking okay it's good well we turn around and we look at the mountain behind us and it's just black so they're like i don't know guys we should wait and it's super windy and i was like how about we go to the first ball first stay up there and uh spend the majority of the time up there if so we'll camp there the second ball um, but i really want to go to the third because i want to be as far away um from people as possible um i have my own reasons for that i've heard of stories up on the trail where things have happened but um and I didn't want to camp right on the trail. So we hike up to the first bald. Oh, and I didn't tell you guys the backstory to this Carver's Gap. Supposedly a lot of Blair Witch Project stuff has gone up, gone on up there. Um, I don't know much about the Blair Witch Project, nor do I want to know. Um, I just know it's some pretty creepy stuff. So, and a lot of people are superstitious about ghosts haunting Carver's Gap up there. Um, it used to a lot of Indian, um, Native Americans used to live up there. Um, they actually believed that the balds, the grassy ridge, the grassy balds, they believed they were balds because they were cursed by quote unquote fire god and he sent fire down and burnt the trees away. But, um, so that's what they believed. And, so, but there has been thought, you know, that they and other people, settlers, pioneers who died up there haunt that area. And so we get up there and, um, I don't know if my friends knew this. I do know this because I've been going up there. Um, these Carver's Gap is about an hour away from where I live. And I go up there. I've been going up there since I was like two RV camping. And also, when I told you guys earlier that my dad would carry me in this carriage uh, thing on, hooked up to a backpack, that was the mountain he would do it on all the time. So, and I, I just love the area. So, we get up there and we, we overpacked so badly. Um, we had 30 to 40 pound backpacks on us, plus the water weight. So, we didn't take water weight into account. So, we get up there, and we ended up spending about six hours, because we got up there at three o'clock, and because we had planned to go to the third ball, which we would have gotten there around six, probably. So we stay there, and spend the entire day there, hike around, just kind of relax, gather some firewood, set up the tents, stuff like that, talk to a lot of backpackers, some thru-hikers, um... And this was really a, a good trip. I loved it because it was a good escape from all this virus stuff going on. And because um, it was real big back then. Um, so is, this was all in July, by the way, just so you know. It's getting dark and beautiful sunset. If you want to see it, see some pictures of it. It's on my Instagram. And I actually filmed this trip. I didn't film all the creepy moments because I was so creeped out i didn't want to i didn't think about filming um so we get up there beautiful sunset we're eating dinner a little high dehydrated meals and it's nighttime, and 
And off and on, we've been seeing those clouds. It had cleared up. But off and on, we've been seeing those clouds. But at nighttime, we didn't see any clouds. We just saw stars. And so we go inside the tent. It's getting a lot colder. The temperature was dropping in July. And I swear that night, it dropped down to the 30s. And it's July. And if you're wondering, why, why are these guys a bunch of weenies not wanting to camp in rain? I love camping in the rain. But I don't enjoy camping in possible thunderstorms at that high of an elevation when you're literally in the cloud and your tent is the only metal thing up there on the mountain. That's the reason why, just to make that clear, that's the reason why we're worried about this. If we were on ground level, I would have ridden it out like till two days later if needed be. So we get up there and it's nighttime. We get, there's two tents. My brother and my friend Max were in um, my friend Max's tent that was a three-person, and I'm in my two-person tent because you know how tents go. You know, three persons actually a two-person. Two persons actually a one-person. Um, two people is actually the max a two-person can hold. So, a little tip there for people getting tents. Um, I'm in my big Agnes, and he was in a Kelty, I think. Um, but we go in his tent to play some Uno, so we're just relaxing, playing some Uno, and my brother's like, "Hey, you want to go look at the Milky Way?" The Milky Way's out. And so we're like, yeah. So we all go out there and we look up and there, when we went inside the tent, there were stars. When we went out of the tent, no stars, all pitch black. And even like your eyes adjust to the dark and you can see, usually see, you know, like clouds. You can usually see the shape of the clouds. None. It's just black. No moon, no stars. And you couldn't even see the end of the cloud. It was just black. And so um, we look off in the distance, and we're like, oh, crap. Because, you know, the winds change up there on the mountains. The winds change so fast, it's unpredictable weather, even though it had predicted sunny and clear all night. So we get up there, and we're we're like, oh, oh, crap. (laughs) We're about to get lightning on everything, because we're looking in the distance, and we're seeing lightning and um, hearing thunder. And I don't know if I ever heard any thunder, but... Usually when there's lightning, there's thunder. But we did see lightning for sure. And um, remind, just to remind you all, this happened in July, and it's like November um, when I'm telling this story. So we're thinking, oh, crap, what are we going to do now? Do we go back to the car? Because luckily we stayed on the first bald. We got up to that first bald with 40, 30 to 40-pound backpacks and said, we're, there's no way we're making it to the third bald. We're staying here. And so parking lot's only a mile away. And it's all downhill. So we were thinking, do we want to go back to the car or do you want to stay? So I really want to stay. But it was getting cold. I'd only brought one blanket because, you know, summertime. I'm not going to bring my sleeping bag because I just can't do sleeping bags in the summertime because you're, like, all wrapped together tight and you're just uncomfortable. That's, like, a really good thing in the wintertime when you need to be warm. But in the summertime, I would prefer a top quilt. I don't have one of those, so I brought one blanket. My friend Max brought one blanket, and my brother brought a sleeping bag. He was the smartest out of all of us on packing for sleeping. So, excuse me. So, um, we're sitting there, and the fire's dying out. It's it's out by now. Um, And Max is just like, you guys want to maybe go to the car 
And I was like, yeah. And so I said, yeah, let's see if it's going to change. So we're sitting there, and all of a sudden we see these white lights flashing everywhere. And I'm like, so since we stayed on the first ball, I told you at the beginning, I wanted to be as far away from people as possible. People were coming up there at night. Not in a good condition if you get my drift. Um, from what I saw. That's why I do not like staying on the first ball. I wanted to stay on the second or third. Because nobody's at that late is going to go hike five miles. Um, so at the, it's about, I'd say this was 10 o'clock. And we're still trying to decide what we're going to do, what we're going to do. And so these white lights just start showing up everywhere. And this group of people had gone up, but I swear, I, I saw them go back down. And my friend Max says, I was like, dude, what, is, what in the world is that? And he says, oh, they're just, they're first, the, first he says, they're just those people taking pictures over there. I was like, no, they went down. And he's like, well, they're probably just fireflies. But I'm like, last time I checked, fireflies are like yellowish orange and lightning bugs are green. And... I like walked over to one of the white lights and I didn't see any bugs. And there, it's so high up on the mountain. I, I'm literally just now realizing this. It's so high up on the mountain. There are literally no bugs up there. Because of how high it is. Like you don't see that many bugs. And this is like multiple white lights just flashing everywhere. We all saw it. You know, I'm not a big conspiracy theory guy. Like I said, I love to look into them just because they're interesting. And I don't even believe in ghosts. But... Um, I believe in demons and all that, but I don't believe in ghosts. Um, so we get up there and we're still thinking. And then my friend Max is like, "Let's go to the car." And we're like, "Yeah, let's go, let's go to the car." And so we're packing up our stuff. I swear, it's the fastest I've ever packed up my stuff in my life. I packed up all my stuff one person in less than ten minutes. I had to wait on my brother and his and my friend Max to um, finish packing up their stuff, and they were helping each other pack up. My brother didn't have a tent, food, or anything, because um, my friend Max carried the tent for him. I carried the food, and um, I carried the water as well. I think he did carry some water, but um, so we pack up. We're walking down the mountain. Weird literally walking in step we are like a military troop on a mission getting down that mountain because we're thinking crap we're about to get poured on and it's gonna be a storm here in any second and because like i said you don't want to be up there and inside a thunderstorm because you're at such high elevation you are in a thunderstorm you are not under a thunderstorm you're in it with lightning and so we're trying to hike down the mountain and we get down you know, you're on the balds, but on the way up the mountain, you go through this wooded area. So we're going down, we get into the woods, and it's nighttime. And that's the, that was about the creepiest part of the trip. We get there, and we're walking in step, you know, left, right, left, right, left, right. And uh, we start hearing footsteps. I did, at least. I know they did, because we stopped. I was like, stop for a second. And we stopped, and we heard footsteps. And I looked back, and I saw this light. And we're thinking, okay, it's just some people that we must have not seen and must have gotten up there. But And they're fall, they're just coming down because they see the storm. Uh, or it's some other backpackers who saw the storm and they're coming down. And so we're hiking down the mountain. But we get off the trail to the parking lot. Nobody came down after behind us. I, I, 
I remember looking back and like, wasn't there someone behind us? And they're like, yeah, but like they, and we even saw the flashlight. It's not like we were just hearing things. We saw a flashlight and we saw, like we kept looking back and we saw all the way down, except for when we got out of the wooded area and they never showed up. And so we get in the car, worst night's sleep I ever had in the car. We all woke up together. It was weird. Like we, we all woke up at the same times, an hour didn't get more sleep than an hour. So we'd sleep for an hour, wake up. We literally thought it was 4 a.m. in the morning. We got to the car at 10.50, packed everything in there. I slept in the back with all the gear. My brother slept in the back seat. You know, you got three rows. Um, and so we folded down the back for the, the back furthest row for all the gear. I slept back there with that. Friend Max slept at the driver's seat. My brother slept in the middle row. And... Every time we would just wake up, be like, oh, dude, it has to be 4 a.m., 6 a.m. And we look at the time, and it's only 11 midnight. It was either 11 or midnight. And longest night I've ever had. Super fun trip. I loved it. We woke up the next morning. Felt like crap. Smelled like crap. But it's, it's part of the adventure, you know. I'm not saying that I know what that stuff was. I don't know what that stuff was up there. I don't know what the lights were. I don't know who was following us down the mountain. All I know is that there was something there. And like I said, I'm not a big conspiracy theory person. I think it's neat to look into, but um, I don't remember. I don't think I've been up there since July. And that's not because I'm scared of it now. <laughs> it's because, I'm, uh, because I've been real busy. So, I hope y'all enjoyed this little story, a little creepy story. Um, hopefully, we'll have another one. I think I'm going to record another one for you all. I have one more. And then, uh, you know, hopefully I can be on this podcast again. I really enjoyed it. And thanks for having me on. Thank you for tuning in. Always remember, the trail is the trail. It doesn't care if you want to go downhill. It doesn't care if it's almost dark and you're looking for a campsite. It doesn't care if you are almost to the top and there is a raging thunderstorm right above your head. The trail is the trail. Embrace the suck. Mondays, head offshore with Captain Scott Walker and Steve Roger for breathtaking deep sea adventures. Coming to me, coming to me, coming to me. Double. He's jumping, he's jumping, he's jumping. Oh! oh. Look at that belly. Don't miss Mondays with Into the Blue. Brought to you by Academy Sports and Outdoors from 7 to 10 p.m. Eastern. Tell a few fish stories along the way. On Waypoint TV, the destination for outdoor entertainment. In Wild Country, rules were not created by man. Don't miss Wild Country, Wednesdays from 7 to 11 p.m. Eastern. Presented by Primos. Speak the language. Waypoint TV, the destination for outdoor entertainment.